Welcome to Best in Show, the podcast that looks at the best episode of each TV series I own in its entirety, based on the voting of IMDb users. Every two weeks, we release a new episode with rotating guest hosts. This week, we are looking at Star Trek Voyager, which technically is the only series I don't own that we're going to be covering. It's available in Netflix in totality at the moment, and I've got every other Star Trek series on this list, so... I went to Voyager, but more on that later. Joined by two mighty fine people this week. So, as always, when we're talking Star Trek, we've got Brian coming in. Welcome back, Brian. Thanks for having me on. And in his, actually, first recording on this podcast, but a gentleman I've known well online, those of you who follow the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast I did, We'll have heard about the Horizon Labs Facebook and Twitter groups many, many, many times. Joining us is one of its most prominent members, and I believe even co-founder, Mr. Rob Nolan. Thank you very much for having me. This is my first podcast ever, so I'm very excited and very nervous. Oh, well, you know what? We've done plenty of the, the round tables with Horizon Labs. I know you'll do fine. And if not, that's what editing is for. And don't worry, he's he's very gentle. It's okay. Oh, okay. All right, so as we said, this week we are looking at Star Trek Voyager. And the episode that was chosen by IMDb voters as the best of the series is actually Season 6, Episode 12, Blink of an Eye, with an average user rating of 8.9 out of 10. And it was down to looking at the actual voting distribution to split hairs between this and Scorpion Part 1, the Season 3 finale in the multi-parter that introduced Seven of Nine, for which actually was the top episode. The voters put them very, very close together. So this is an episode that was directed by Gabrielle Beaumont. The story was by Michael Taylor, with a teleplay by Joe Minoski. And just in terms of the other creators, in this particular year, the showrunner was Brandon Braga. But it started off with Michael Piller as showrunner for the first season, Jerry Taylor for the next two, Brandon Braga for the next two, and then wrapped up with Kenneth Biller. So we had a few different showrunners in the course of the series. This is in the Brandon Braga era. And this is, oddly enough, Gabrielle Beaumont's only episode of Voyager that she directed. So she did direct other Trek, including seven episodes of Next Generation and one episode of Deep Space Nine. But yeah, her only Voyager turned out to be the best of the bunch as far as IMDb is concerned. So that's the preliminaries. Basic plot synopsis. Voyager finds himself trapped in orbit around a planet, and for a number of scientific reasons, or pseudoscientific reasons, there's a massive time differential between what the crew of Voyager experiences, and what the planet experiences. So entire civilizations rise and fall in the day or two that it takes Voyager to get out of orbit, if it's even that long. And we just kind of see the impact that Voyager has on this culture. So let's open it up to you guys first. Uh, let's go with Rob first. Rob, what's your experience with Voyager? Did you watch this episode the original broadcast? Did you discover it later? This this specific episode, I, I didn't watch when it aired. I was I, I remember when Voyager first started because they had a big Star Trek day on the BBC uh, here in the UK and they, they aired the pilot. And, and it, it, it lost, a, I mean, as you know, it lost a lot of, of viewership over those first three years. 
um, even when they tried to bring Sulu back and did that flashback episode. But I really got my teeth stuck into it um, around season four, not because of the, the normal reasons, just because of timing. Um, and so I remember I used to buy a VHS every other week. And one used to be Voyager, and then two weeks later I'd get a DS9 one. So I kind of got gaps, and I gapped right over that episode. So I never actually saw it until must have been a year ago, a year and a half ago, and I got the, the DVD box set of the whole run, and I de- was determined to sit down and, and watch Voyager from the very, very beginning. And I made it to this episode. So I'd actually only watched it once before watching it again for this podcast, that specific episode. Okay. And how about you, Brian? Well, yeah, I'm you know, big Star Trek fan, so I, I watched it probably during the original run. I mean, Voyager, Voyager's what, you know, reviewing Voyager's what, what started me out on, on Bureau 42. So I had to go double check. So I'm like, did I actually review this one? I think I actually started reviewing in season seven, uh, the, the final season of Voyager. So didn't catch this one because this was a season six. But this was, you know, probably what, you know, caught it through in the first run. I think I, I do need to go back and rewatch all of Voyager again because I know I've done Next Gen a couple of times. I know I've done DS9 probably more times than is healthy. Um, but beyond that, yeah, I, I think I think I watched Voyager through its original run and then haven't really spent a lot of time looking at it. And I did I did watch Caretaker again. Um, my son was curious. He wanted to see you know Voyager. Uh, and we were rewatched Caretaker, and he could not get interested in in the rest of the series after that. Which I can't blame him. It's it, it's it's a weak pilot episode, but uh, this was definitely one of the better uh, Voyagers. Yeah, it is. And just my own history with Voyager. As I said, this is the only Star Trek I don't own physical copies of, and a lot of that is just because when this premiered. I was a physics major, and part of the production crew on Next Generation and Deep Space Nine was a scientific advisor with physics and chemistry background. Apparently, they got a lot of angry fan mail about how bad the biology mistakes were. Things like Dr. Beverly Crusher misidentifying the lobe of the brain where the memory is stored, and stuff like that. Things that should have been easy to double check but weren't. I didn't catch any of those, but the producers decided to correct this by hiring a new science advisor for Voyager with a biology background, not physics and chemistry. So I was turned off of Voyager in the first season for a couple of reasons. One is that the first two episodes have horrible physics, not just flames in space, but the second episode is about being trapped in a black hole. And not like Next Generation, where the premise is about some weird science gimmick, but it's really about the characters. This one was about the science, and they got it wrong from start to finish. So that I found off-putting. Yeah, that sort of explains why the ship's got the 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 bioneural uh, interface for the ship, where they, they they made biology part of the the ship's computer. They did, and biocomputing was going to be the next big thing in the '90s before they shifted to quantum computing. So I, I get why they did that. It was you know it was an appropriate choice for the time. It was just between that and I felt the premise of the show was squandered. They should have had a lot more conflict between Starfleet and Maquis. The way Janeway was written in the first couple of seasons, I don't believe that she would have integrated those crews 
Janeway from season three on, yeah, I believe that she could have gotten the crews integrated. But they hadn't started writing her that way yet. True. And, and I think, sorry to, to jump in, but I think with <clears throat> with the first series, there's only so much you could have done with the two crews clashing against each other before the reality would have kicked in of, you know, you're stuck in deep, deep, deep space. You can, you can bicker as much as you want, but, you know, the only option is get off the ship and walk or, or get along. So I don't, I don't, I don't know if they had much power behind continuing those, those ideas before everyone would have gone, we get it. You don't get along. Yeah. Fly. Yeah. And I think to me that the, the death knell on that one was when they finally revealed that the only Maquis who really was causing a lot of strife in the long term turned out to secretly be Cardassian was there just to be a monkey wrench in the plan. Yeah. So there's a few things that put me off that and the fact that they established right in the pilot that the maximum cruising speed is warp 9.9375, which they never go. They go warp 6. And if you actually pull out data on the size of the galaxy and the warp curve from the Star Trek Next Generation Technical Manual with the exponential growth that I've got, warp 9.9375 gets them home in 18 months, not 70-some years. So I, I personally think that they should have been swept into a different galaxy because interstellar hydrogen isn't enough to power the warp engines, and then they have to explore to find a super scientific way back because they can't just fly there. Wow, you you and I have very different problems with that first season then. Because <laughs> my biggest problem with a lot of the first season was um, I, I have a, my, I suppose my OCD is is the continuity of how episodes start. So the number of times they go to a planet, they're like, this planet will give us this substance which we need to fuel the f- generators or the the replicators or something, and then they get kidnapped or attacked or this massive plot point that was nothing to do with why they went to the planet. And then the episode would finish and everyone would be happy and everyone would be safe and alive. And I'd be sitting there watching the credits roll going, did you find the thing? You, you didn't mention it. Do you do you have food for the next week? And they yeah. never resolved it. And eventually by season two and season three, they would just stop going to planets for any reason other than science, which is exactly why they mm-hmm. go to this planet in season six. They're just curious. Yeah, it is. So that's, well, I can see one of the things that, I liked about the first season was that you actually got the feeling that resources were scarce. I mean, yeah, they didn't always implement it well, but I like the fact that they were sitting there going, okay, we've got these many rations left. We need to find a solution. They never actually told you what the solutions were, as you just said. But I like the yeah. fact that they addressed that they needed them. Yeah, it, it was a good chance for the, for, for the Star Trek universe to take a good look at how stuff gets made. I mean, mm-hmm. when you have replicators, how do you make, you know, what, what do you make stuff out of? Um, you know, just because you have a replicator doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you can make things, you know, fuel is expendable, you know, certain materials are, are finite resources and they, they could have really gotten into, you know, the, the nitty gritty of how it works. But I, I think after, in, after DS9, I think unfortunately a lot of the, the, the good writers left. Um, and I think you were left with kind of the second string crew. Um, and, in, and I think you, the, the producers and, and the, the folks that even Paramount, they were just, it was fatigue. Um, you know, we'd done next gen for seven seasons. We'd done DS9 for seven seasons. Um, they were run, you know, they were clearly, they were short on ideas and they were short on, they were kind of fatigued. And, uh, I think unfortunately it shows in a lot of episodes. 
Well, what a what a positive way for us to start talking about the most highly rated episode of this of this series. No, it means they they've they've risen above what uh, what they were what they were handed. Well, they have. I mean, I I started watching Voyager dedicated just in the last year. I mean, when it was on the first time, I was hit and miss through season one, and then from then on, it was basically season premiere, season finale, and part of that was. Honestly, because of the way they marketed the introduction of Seven of Nine into the show. In the 1990s, at least my perception as a teenager in the 90s is that there was a lot of media talk about the unreasonable expectation that pop culture was giving, especially young girls, about how they should grow up. And, I mean, we're talking Barbie. We're talking, you know, this was an area where I was reading comic books, like, you know, X-Men comics drawn by Jim Lee. And on the one hand, you have people saying these are inhuman proportions no female can expect to have. On the other hand, Jerry Ryan is on Voyager, and she looks like Jim Lee designed her. Mm. Right? She she's got that figure, and they've got her in an outfit where how should I say it? It it conforms to her right down the center of her chest as well as the rest of her, which is one of the things that was specifically comics. And you know, I'm not saying that. It was just women facing this. I mean, as I said, I grew up in the 80s, so I was growing up with X-Men, male X-Men, drawn by Jim Lee. I grew up with He-Man. Like, there were unreasonable expectations for both genders. But the fact that Jerry Ryan is actually a good actress and the fact that the introduction of her character seemed to finally give them the internal conflict that they could latch onto, where it's not adversarial conflict, but two completely different thought processes to solve problems. Yeah. And it was, you know, some abrasion as they're arguing over which is the best way to solve this issue. I think Voyager actually finds its footing in season four, largely because of the introduction of seven, because of the relationship that they develop between her and Janeway and the doctor. And it continues from there. The, the show actually improves dramatically. So if any listeners were like me who gave up on Voyager in those first three seasons, it's worth skipping ahead at least to the season three finale to see how Seven of Nine joins the crew and give it a shot from there. The, yeah. the beauty of, of Seven, I think, beyond, well, I think obviously she gets a lot of flack because of the physical attributes she introduces to the season. Um, <clears throat> but uh, what's important to keep in mind, I think, as a character, and you are right, that she's played by a fantastic actress, is that it's where Voyager finds its Spock. Um, I mean, DS9 is a unique creature on its own because it's, it's not a spaceship and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a small family living on a station and, and people come to them. Obviously, they explore later on to try to, you know, change things up a bit. But original series has its, its Spock. It has its, you know, I'm logical, I'm scientific, I'm intelligent, but I've got a problem with emotions. You have that with Data to a completely different agree, degree in Next Gen, but it works as well. Data is very much Picard Spock. Um, and that's exactly what happens in Voyager is that you get this confidant of the captain who is intelligent, who is logical, who has a problem with emotions. And so if anything, yes, OK, you brought in a fantastic body, but you've, <laughs> you've also got this this trope in a, in a very different disguise. But it's, it's there and it really strengthens those classic ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you've got. She she brings a different um, ethical perspective. I think is is the you know, the main thing because she's she didn't grow up human quote unquote human. Um, and she's not Starfleet, 
she's not, you know, she doesn't have any of the preconceived notions that everyone else does. So she does, you know, she'll say things that are just like wildly, you know, sometimes wildly inappropriate. And sometimes it's just like, oh, yeah, that's true. Um, and she's yeah, she's very well played. Um, I, the fans, myself included, I'm just as guilty. You know, we were we were very uh, suspicious when she rolled on. Um you know, because of the look, um, I believe at the time she was dating uh, Braga at the time. So we were like, oh, so, you know, the producer's hot girlfriend gets a gets a role in the show. Um, and we I think we get kind of looked up, you know, overlooked the fact that oh, this is changing things up. It's it's adding that level of grit and abrasion that that made DS9 work is because you had different characters. You had non Starfleet characters um, and this really did that. Whereas in the first couple of seasons, Neelix and Kess did not do that. Um, mostly because they were just too nice. Whereas uh, seven of nine, she, she wasn't mean, but she wasn't, uh, she was unfiltered. Let's call it that. Uh, she was unfiltered. Uh, and she would say things that are just like, you know, she'd say things in, in normal conversation be like, Oh, that was really mean, but she wasn't being mean. She was just being blunt. Yeah. Uh, and and they were some some of the some of the best interactions um, coming back to this episode. She she actually it's uh, very much an ensemble piece and uh, we don't actually have that. Uh, but she's, you know, just a one ingredient in a, in a whole pot that kind of makes this particular episode a really, you know, an interesting story. I mean, what's interesting, I guess, just to focus on Seven before we, we dive into the timey-wiminess of what's going to happen in this episode. Um, yeah, she, she does bring that that out-of-the-mouth-of-babes innocence, I guess, with the things that she says, because obviously she was a child when she was assimilated. Um, and and oh, maybe we'll get to this later, but there is almost a level of, <laughs> I suppose because she's so socially disconnected, almost a level of, of autism in there, I guess that she's she doesn't know how to behave in these situations. And that is a lifesaver. It says a lot about, you know, to the crew. Um, but going back to what you were saying before about the um, the marquee, she they achieve with her what they never achieve with Neelix or Kez, as you just said, because they were just too soft. But most of the marquee are ex Starfleet or, or Starfleet trained. And so they, they almost threw away this idea so early of we could have an alternative perspective because the Marquis was so Starfleet anyway. They were just Starfleet people that were quite resentful that they, they had to bring in her in to, to finally use this idea that they haven't used before. Yeah, or at the very least, the, the Marquis crew that they chose to focus on Yeah, were, were the ex-Starfleet. Like, I mean, Chakotay and Bellana Torres were very much there. I actually think it would have been much more interesting if Chakotay had no Star Trek background and wasn't really following the standard Federation ethics. But again, that's not the way they went. Yeah, I mean, he would have made a really good first officer because he would have had a very different opinion to Janeway. But instead, they agreed, I think, all but one time, mostly. Yeah, for the most part. And that's, again, that's the issue I, I think that we were touching on with, with Kess and Neelix. It's not just that they were nice, it's that it's like they met the Federation and immediately said, oh, you think like us. We get you. That's the society we want to live in. So we're going to say goodbye to everything behind us and join you because that's where we belong. And, you know, right there, there was very little. Like, early on, Neelix basically seemed to be the exposition dump. Right? Yeah. And Kess was there because he was there. Yeah, he was the one who knew the territory. So, like, okay, Neelix, what can we expect? And he would tell them what to expect, and then they'd go from there. 
And and that's what's interesting, I guess, with what they do with Kess and, and how badly they do it, in my opinion, uh, and, and how Neelix it does have his uses and, and how they actually get to a point with Neelix where they say, this is as far as my knowledge goes of this area. What use am I on this ship anymore? And that's when he kind of gets expanded upon a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's that whole he becomes an ambassador, air quotes. But what's interesting is that apart from the pilot um, and picking up seven and then the, the Borg children in is it season six, season seven, uh, late six. Yeah. Late season six. In all of that time, they don't pick up strays. And and yet these this primary concept, I guess, is that they're flying through this massive expanse of of space with a very limited crew. And they mm-hmm. only pick up three adults and a bunch of kids in the better part of seven years. And yet apparently they're this wonderful ship with this wonderful group of people on who make you want to leave your life behind. Yeah, in, in reality, yeah, the, the series could have turned into something a little more akin to uh, Battlestar Galactica, where they're picking up ships, you know, a small fleet of people, you know, you know, refugees and um, different things like that. The whole the whole series could have done something more more on that. But, you know, Ron Moore and company, they they left and after, they I think Ron Moore did a couple of episodes of Voyager and just kept butting heads with the producers and said, fine, I'm leaving. And then went off and did uh, the, the Galactica reboot. So, you know, they, I think there's a lot of missed. We would probably do a whole podcast on all the things that they, they kind of stumbled on out of the gate. I think they kind of, they kind of were stuck with some millstones around their neck for the first couple of seasons. Hmm. Um, you know, the, how they, you know, who they picked up in the first, you know, you Picking up Neelix and Kess wouldn't have been more interesting if they picked up more of a quirk kind of character, somebody a little more abrasive. Yeah, the way Neelix describes himself later when he's having that crisis of how do I help now? So yeah, those those sorts of things could have been you know better done. You again, the the conflict with the Maquis never really materialized, um, other than you know Balana punching things um, or people. Uh, exactly, you know, Chakotay. It is funny to watch Chakotay where he'll he'll raise an objection and then Jane will just simply override him. You're like, okay, I'll go sit back. I'll go just sit back in the corner for the rest of the episode. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you know, th- those sorts of things. They were kind of from the get go. They were kind of kind of hamstrung, uh, and it wasn't until they kind of get in where the the Doctor becomes a more interesting character. Uh, you add seven of nine to, to give that abrasion. Um, they got rid of Kess, which, you know, helped a lot, I think, because they were, they had to exercise X amount of story time for her. And it just, she just wasn't an interesting character. Yeah. And apparently that wasn't even the original plan. So uh, for those who aren't aware, Kess left right around the time seven came in. And the reason she left is because when they brought in seven of nine, the budget didn't change. So they could only pay so many regulars. So one of the series regulars had to go to make room for Seven of Nine. And in that story arc, Harry Kim got incredibly sick. And the original plan was actually to kill Harry Kim. But then I forget whether it's time or people, but one of those magazines put in a list of the 50 most beautiful people in Hollywood, and he made the list. So the producer said, whoa, wait a minute, we, we say we want to up the sex appeal. That's why we're bringing this person on. Maybe let's not lose the guy who just made that list. So Kess went instead. And also, I think as, as, as from an ethnic quota as well, you know, you don't want to can your one lead Asian-American actor 
for another blonde woman, given that you just mm. brought in, you know, you, you were whitewashing the crew quite rapidly if you'd done that. Yeah, and it's I, I think losing Kess was the right choice, because doing her properly... Oh, God, yes. I mean, not only were, did they not really figure out what to do with her story... Or her hair. Or, yeah, or her hair. But doing her properly, <laughs> which they didn't do, would have added considerable amounts to the makeup budget. Because she's part of a species that has a nine-year lifespan. So, in human terms, she should have been aging about a decade per season. Yeah. And she wasn't. Like She was aging visibly at the same rate as the rest of the crew until they make her go away for two and a half seasons, and then she comes back geriatric for one episode. Maybe when she left her planet, she would have aged at a different speed, just like this episode. Yes, which we should probably get into, considering we're now 26 minutes into the podcast nice. recording. Nice. Yeah. Nice segue. Nice, nice segue. Segue. I'm so proud. All right. So, yeah, as we said, this there's a major time differential, the civilizations rise and fall, and they really make meaningful contact with one member of the civilization played by Daniel Day Kim. Now, he's an actor that is only in this one episode of Voyager, but we'll be hearing more about him in the podcast episodes in this series when we get into Lost and Babylon 5 Crusade, because he was regulars on both of those series as well. But yeah, the basic idea is that Voyager, they aren't just observing this planet going through time very rapidly, their presence is causing some major earthquakes. And it's also sort of the low-hanging fruit, and it's driving technological growth and a desire for exploration and first contact, religions, everything on this planet. Because there's a spaceship up in the sky. It's right there. They can see it. So it's obviously going to be impacting their culture. <laughs> Daniel Day Kim is one of the two members of this planet who managed to successfully dock with Voyager. He survives the transition between time frames, learns what's going on, goes back to try and get them to stop trying to destroy Voyager, because that was a recent turn, and figures out how to help Voyager escape. So we get the nice happy ending. One of the things we like to talk about is why this is the highest rated, and that's the part I want to focus on. Because the idea of the Best in Show podcast is to talk about the positives of things. I don't want to dwell on the negatives. That's why I want to pick the best episodes. So I'm going to severely limit myself here and just say the scientific representation of what would happen with this time frame between this planet and the rest of the galaxy is horribly, horribly broken. I'm not going to allow myself to go into details on that, but it's just that aspect does not work for me at all. There, there's, there's something to be said. I mean, like I said, it's, it's, it's some pseudoscience in service to the story. How does this help the story? Um, and, and you are caught up, you know, Unless you're a physics major, um, I think with this episode you do get caught up in the story and less worried about the the the, the time dilation uh, concept. Uh, you know, it, 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 you know, it, at the time it was a relatively new concept to, to to science fiction, at least to science fiction TV. You know, Interstellar wouldn't be more. You know, a couple of decades later. Um, to, to really hammer on the, the same concept, but it was is an interesting idea. How does how does society evolve? Um, they they could have played a little bit more with um, you know the, the the first the first contact rules, uh, the prime directive rules, 
because I mean they have a discussion at at one point, but I think they finally just said, "Ah, hang it, we're we've already, the damage is done. We're we're, we're just gonna have to own it," um, which is which is a fair assumption um, for the crew. But they do you do get to actually see uh, when they talk about the prime directive. What does the prime directive mean? What is this doing? And this is what it means. This is why starships don't go and mess around with with pre warp. Uh, technologies it has an effect uh for good or ill um in in this case it it helped the society a lot because you yeah they could look up in the sky after they invent telescopes they realize that instead of it just being this really bright star in the sky oh this is if there's a ship up there there is a what they refer to it as a sky ship and how it affects their culture um they even talk about at one point the the skyship friends there's a, a i'm guessing a tv show and a and a set of toys based on it and how it's part of the culture but yeah astronomers and uh, scientists look up in the sky and they see it's like oh flight is possible uh star travel is possible there is life outside you know outside of our planet what does that prompt people to do how does that affect their their science their religion their culture um, and in this particular instance, it was it was a positive effect. Um, you know, depends. You know, it, the series doesn't really. None of the series really spent a lot of time dealing with this. Uh, the original series had a piece of the action, which had you know a book affects a culture and turns them all into 1930s gangsters. Um, I think some of the extended books get into a little bit more, but this is really kind of the first time we really take a good whack at what the prime directive means and why, why it's important. Yeah. It, uh, it, it's a tough one. Cause like you said, it, it has a positive, you know, Voyager's presence in, in, in orbit around the planet and, and you find out it's, it's a lower orbit than it would like to be, um, which is probably why they're so visible. Um, but, uh, they do actually hint at the fact that, uh, different classes have, have, not necessarily gone to war, but are very, very have different interpretations of what the skyship represents. So they, they call it the the ground shaker to start with, and then the skyship, and then the starship, and then they eventually find out it's got a name. Um, so there is that that early kind of indication of as soon as you go near a planet that can see you, if they're pre-warp, you could influence them in some way, and it isn't going to be positive. Um, it would have been interesting if they'd done more of that, if if even the doctor had kind of hinted at there was a war and it's over the interpretation of, of the meaning of the skyship. Because he does come back from his three year excursion and say, oh, there was a there was a war, but you don't really find out overly too much about it. I think as an episode, one of the reasons why it may have been rated so highly is that it is a very good episode of Star Trek. I wouldn't necessarily say it's the best episode of Voyager. I have personal bias. I think the killing game is the greatest episode of Voyager. I may have watched it a lot, um, but it's got seven of nine singing in it. And it's basically the Star Trek version of a low, So I can't not love it. Um, but, uh, but it's a fantastic episode of Star Trek. You have, you know, you, you dance around the, the idea of the prime directive and first contact where you haven't got much of a choice because your appearance there immediately violates the concept. So you, you have to dismiss it quite quickly. You get a really good point of view from the species on the planet, not just the starship. You throw every character in, so it's a good introduction. Um, and, it, and it's quite fast-paced. And it's got that kind of sci-fi thing that you can just get involved in. It's a spaceship trapped in orbit around a planet. 
there you go. Run with it. It is. It. I mean, the original Star Trek liked to hire hard sci-fi writers. Like I said, that's not the case here. But the other thing that set the original Star Trek apart is the social commentary and the fact that they could work that in and actually examine cultures and how we got there. And that, I think this episode of Voyager does that better than any other episode I've seen. And at this point, I've watched the first six seasons in totality. And I watched the series finale in the original broadcast, and that's what I've seen. So I still have most of season seven to go. But up to this point, in terms of sitting down and looking at cultural developments and what are the driving forces and how is that an impact and what could we do if we're there, I can't think of an episode of Voyager that does this better, and this might be the, the best episode for that in the entirety of Trek. Mm. It's so self-contained as well. To be, to be able to do that, take those concepts so well, I mean, it's 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 quite high speed in the fact that it, as soon as it kicks off, you find out about, you know, how they've immediately impacted the beliefs of this planet. And if you watch it, I mean, the ending is it, it's quite abrupt and not that it's it finishes badly, but literally they hoik them out of the atmosphere. The, the, the man has aged. He's sitting there. He's watching the ship leave. And that's it. It's end, it ends. It doesn't even end with a final moment on board the ship. It's not about the crew in that episode. It's about the, the culmination of what happens to the planet. But it's packed. You know, there's no real pause in that episode. There's no time for one. No. And, and, and that's where the, the, the construct of the time, as time is moving so quickly, you, you're not given that chance to breathe. Um, you've got to keep moving and, and you get to see the effects um, real time, so to speak. Um, but uh, it, uh, to your point there, you know, there, you spend a lot of time on the planet and I, I couldn't help think the, the last podcast re- re- that I recorded for uh, best of was, was uh, inner light. Um, and how much of that episode was spent not dealing with the, what's going on on the ship, but doing some alien culture. And again, another best of episode is kind of in the same ballpark of we spent probably a good, at least for the first half of the episode, most of the time on the planet surface, not even engaging with the crew. We're, we're just watching what's going on on the planet uh, and the various effects. And I think it's kind of interesting that 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 uh, a best of episode spends so much time away from our, our you know, our, our regular cast. And that's actually one of the things that we like to talk about here is how well we think this would work as someone's first episode of the series. So could you step in and watch watch this in two perspectives? So one, does it make sense to first-time viewers? And two, is it representative of the series as a whole? It would make sense, you know, as, as a Star Trek episode. And, and I think for Voyager, you could easily get into it and go, okay, I, I get who these people are. This is the structure of the crew. They're flying through space. They stopped at a planet. Um, that would, that would, that would work very, very well. Um, I don't think you, you learn much about the problems that the ship is facing. They are just flying through space. It could have been the next gen. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they stop at the planet for scientific reasons. There's no hint of, oh, we're lost in space and we're never going to get home and it's terrible. They're very positive about the fact that, you know, they're probably going to die in orbit. Um, so yeah, I, I think it would be a good way of tricking someone into watching Voyager, <laughs> especially if they like the next gen. You're like, well, watch this episode. It's just like any other Star Trek program with a ship explores mm-hmm. space. Now go back and watch Caretaker and you'll probably lose them. Um, so, yeah, you're right. This this you could have easily dropped this 
plot on original series next gen even ds9 this could have been a uh, you know this could have been the defiant outing the gamma quadrant um or enterprise this could have been dropped onto any of the star trek series and it could have been dropped into a sci-fi anthology series um it, it it's it, it's not to say it's not a, a it's ex- good television it's just nothing is intrinsically voyager e about yeah. this this episode uh you don't get that they are you know you know thousands and thousands of light years from home and trying to get home none of that comes in none of the uh you know the the only the only reason you realize that that the doctor is a hologram is because he's the only one that could be beamed down to the planet without dying um yeah and that's really the only thing you you need i think for this that makes it voyager it's just that that crew member who could go down but on next gen they could have just as easily made the claim that it was data that survived the trip because mm-hmm. he would never, yeah, because the age problem wouldn't have wouldn't have affected him. So yeah, that would have worked. Yeah, and it's DS9. They might have pulled off Odo. Yeah, yeah, Odo could have done it too. Yeah, they've already yeah they had established in one episode that he can he he can live much longer than everybody else. Um, so yeah, it could have very easily um, or even Enterprise. It could have been to Paul since she's Vulcan. Yeah. Three years is 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 a sneeze to them. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a variety of different. Uh, this could have gone with with any particular uh, crew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just need that one member of the crew where you have some sort of pseudo scientific excuse for why they can handle the time differential, and the others can. They probably could have come up with something, some some device that they would wear on their belt, some time stasis thing. Well, I mean that that's how the people end up doing it in the at the end, isn't it? They they figure out the mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah, yeah. Daniel Day Kim shows up with that vortex manipulator, or what do they call? Oh, uh, just probably change the polarity of the neutron flow. That's how you solve every problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, DS9. Yeah, you're right. They could have done it in DS9. They could have just gone to the Gamma Quadrant and uh, found a planet where the there was some sort of atmospheric disturbance where if you go down there, it distorts time. Wait a minute, they already did that. Um, in fact, they did it twice in DS9 because there's the one where um, the Defiant crashes mm-hmm. and 80 years in the past. And, and again, Odo is the only one that survives. Um, and then they do it again. I think both episodes might even be during season six. You know, shame on DS9 writers because the sound of her voice, which is a wonderful episode, mm-hmm. um, is about somebody who's crashed on a planet and it's kind of in the past and the signal bounces into the future. So. It would have worked on DS9, but it would have been yet another, oh, there's a time-affected planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or some other anomalous planet, because they had the Brigadoon planet as well in, I want to say, season three? Two or three? Which one was there? Uh, there was a planet where Jedzia fell in love with the guy, but the planet is only part of this reality oh, for like yeah. one day every so many decades. Yeah. It's 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 the Kun Loon of Star Trek for anybody that's watched Iron Fist. <laughs> yeah, or it was they flat out say that they were inspired by Brigadoon, directed by Vincent Minnelli, starring Gene Kelly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which is is a fun movie to watch. I don't recommend going to see it in theaters. It's it, it, uh, um, it's it's a it's a very dull <laughs> musical. Well, it's, you, it's you, musical yeah, go. watching it already. Well done. <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, like I said, it's, it's not in, it's, you, you could, yeah, it's a good episode to trick people, uh, into watching Voyager, not necessarily, uh, indicative of the whole. 
Mm-hmm. But at the very least, like I said, I personally found that Voyager seemed to find its footing in season four. And if you show someone, these are the kind of heights they can achieve. And frankly, if you look at the IMDb scores for the best of every series, the animated series is the only track that comes out lower than this for the peak. So Voyager's peaks are not as high as the peaks in the other shows, but it's much better than I thought it would be based on my limited exposure to those first few seasons. Plus, season four has the killing game in. I'm just going to bring that one back up. <laughs> and I mean, just because we, we do tend to bring it up, the for reference, the lowest rated episode of the series was Threshold. Oh, now, hang on. I can do this. Please tell me that's the one where they break Warp 9 and Paris turns into a fish monster. That's the one where they break Warp 10. That's, yes, Warp 10, yeah. And, oh, and... my God. Yeah, Season 3, Episode 8. Oh, no, hang on. That's... Area Salamander Sex, I dimly recall. Yes. Yes, it was... Sorry. I was just searching my spreadsheet and only got to Voyage and found these are the voyages from the end of Enterprise. But no, the threshold was Season 2, Episode 15, 5.2 out of 10. That's where they break the Warp 10 barrier as a side effect. Tom Paris and Janeway get somehow evolved into salamanders and leave behind a litter of babies before being brought back to Voyager and turned back to normal. Because science. I remember, yeah. But we can save the discussion for that one for when it <laughs> when we get to it. But yeah, I remember watching that one going, oh dear. And yet, Lord. weirdly enough, having watched you know, the entire season from beginning to end, I remember the episode very well, as opposed to A Blink in the Eye, which, well, the title says it all. It's just gone. Yeah, this, yeah, it's well done, but this episode really has no lasting impact on the series. I mean, Rob, you mentioned that you were kind of watching alternates because you were picking up the, the VHS every few weeks. Oh, yes. I don't think you'd have had any problem following the ongoing arc in Voyager having missed this this particular episode. It's very true. And that's why I believe I, as, as a Star Trek fan, when, you know, you speak to someone and they go, oh, what do you like the most? Um, I, I eventually, you know, began to say as a, as a teenager and as a young adult, um, Deep Space Nine, because... Whilst I was buying season four of Voyager, which had the killing game and some very good one off episodes of Voyager, which, as you say, you can just dip in and out of because they're flying in a straight line. It doesn't matter when you pick it up. They're still on that route on the way home. Um, Whereas with DS9, as I was watching season six, because those were the VHS that were alternating, you were in the middle of the of the war with the uh, the and the Dominion. You were you were in the middle of that Dominion war. Um, and, uh, and so you had to get stuck into it. And gradually that was the series that trumped it for me. That was the series that I really got into and DS9 became my favorite Star Trek. And it wasn't until I decided to, to watch Voyager from beginning to end that I finally gave it fair viewing. And yeah, it is a giant seven year story, um, with a very slow start, a fantastic middle and a questionable finale of convenience. Okay. Well, you know what? Rather than keep up from there and diving into the Deep Space Nine talk, the three of us are going to come back to discuss Deep Space Nine. That episode is only five episodes down the road. So why don't we just say our final thoughts on Voyager and this particular episode of Voyager, and then wrap up and just invite people to come back and discuss Deep Space Nine with us on the Deep Space Nine podcast in, I guess, ten weeks' time. 
So, Rob and Brian, do you guys have any final thoughts on this episode and on Voyager as a whole? Um, I, I think, in, you know, in terms of of overall, you know, is the, you, we keep talking about a killing game. I, I keep coming back to you. Uh, Equinox is one of my favorite. In oh, my yeah. personal opinion for for best for for Voyager. Um, in that it, it's it it's kind of more of what Voyager's about. Um, you know, it sort of shows the the dark. You know. One of the neat things about Voyager was that it's Starfleet removed from Starfleet from from the Federation. Um, you know, when you're out and about, do you still behave ethically? Do you still follow all the rules? And and Janeway, by and large, follows the rules, and and she still does what you know what she thinks is the most ethical thing. You know, sometimes to the the detriment of her crew. Um, and Equinox shows what the opposite of that is, is when a captain says, well, screw it. I'm going to look out for my crew and my crew only, and we're going to get home, damn the costs. Um, and that's the, the, for, you know, for Timeline, that was just a few episodes before that. That was the uh, season five finale, season six premiere. Um, so that, you know, I, I think it's a better, better way to look at Voyager. But this is... Uh, by and large, a really good episode, and it's a really good way to to look at the Prime Directive and look at, uh, you know, the 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 idea of non interference. That just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something, and in kind of you know the the unexpected consequences of of just simply dropping into orbit on a planet. Um, you know, maybe maybe they 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 can learn to to scan a planet a little better before <laughs> dropping into orbit. Just a thought. Um, the number of times that, and it's not just Voyager. I, I can't really criticize Voyager. There's there's a there's an intrinsic problem in Star Trek where they just drop into orbit any old place, and, and it's yeah. like, oh, we're stuck here. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and especially like, with Voyager, it's almost um, it's almost you know, doubly full them because they make such a point from season four onwards of having one of the most amazing astrometrics laboratories, you know, that we've seen on any starship to the point where seven can tell, you know, what shoe size you are from seven light years away on our planet, you know, that hasn't got warp drive as long as she's scanned it a week in advance. And yet, yeah, they still stumble across this tacky on core planet and park up right beside it and wonder why it all backfires. Um, so who knows? I, li- I love that we've completely skipped over deeper meanings for this, though. We haven't just, it's about the Prime Directive. That's probably what it is. Uh. Yeah, we've kind of covered it. It doesn't, it, it, yeah, it doesn't seem to hit any specific, you see to me moment where there's one clear moral. It really is just the exploration of all the impact it can have. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks at the idea of, of belief fueling science born out of religion. Um, but not in any way that's deep enough to even talk about because it's so fast. Yeah. Um, because they go from, you know, cave dwellers or, or at least tribes people to industrial revolution to spacefaring in the space of 40 minutes. Yeah. And, and, and there's also, there's, there's also a missing story of what the hell happened to the doctor while he was on the planet. He had a kid. Um, and yeah. He's like, yeah, look up Jason so and so. Like, Jason, that's an unusual name. Well, yeah, he's my son. And then they just walk off from it. And yep. I, I, I went and looked. I looked up on Memory Alpha to see, like, did some, did, did, did they write a book? Did somebody go and, and write a book to fill in that gap? And nobody's written a book about um, the Doctor's three years on, uh, on this planet. I just thought it was kind of funny. It was like, there's, you know, and, and, and in true Star Trek fashion, you know, next week everything's forgotten. 
never mind the fact that, you know, the doctor has clearly lived with somebody, mm-hmm. um, had a quote unquote son. And the next episode, you know, I'm like, I would be kind of traumatized, um, you know, admittedly, he's a program. He's not a, a real person, but you know, oh. they, they don't ever mention that again. Um, you know, like you said, they warp off and in, in a way they yep. go. But then okay. that's that's what Voyager does, doesn't it? It's, it's almost very Doctor Who in its in its nature that, you know. It, it's almost like space littering, whereas the Doctor kind of time litters. You know, I mean, you know, they, they turn into saucy salamanders um, that get jiggy with it and they just leave the babies on their planet. What the hell does that do to the ecosystem? They have no idea what's going to happen to their planet, what's already on their planet. They probably didn't scan it. I mean, we all know what happens when they do. They thought that's dangerous. We just won't bother. We'll just pick up our crew, sod the children. Um, we'll just leave them there. It's fine. I mean, is that not a violation of the Prime Directive? We've left an unnatural species of a hyper-evolved human that's just a fish slizzard in a pond, and we'll just we'll just leave. Um, and they carry on doing that. They just left a what a half hologram, half something or other child on our planet, and they just left. How about an entire duplicate crew on another planet? Yeah, which actually came back later. Yeah, it did come back to them. And plus, you've got the you've got this this planet that's evolving. That their time is moving thousands of times faster than the rest of of you know uh, normal space. You know, what are they going to evolve into? Um, you know, how are they, are they going to once they do and discover warp drive? Are they going to completely leapfrog uh, everybody else uh, in in the galaxy because they just simply they can you know. In a year on their planet is, you know, decades and or centuries, and they can, you know, you know the, what happens, you know, do they eclipse the Borg? Can they, you know, they do all sorts of things like that. Uh, that's a huge unanswered question they just left behind them. It would have been fun to have them have that that same as part of the finale or something, have that same species come and catch up to them saying, hey, you know. You're part of our mythos, you know, from thousands of years ago. Uh, but, you know, we built this super trans warp drive. And here, now you guys can get yourselves home or something, you know. Uh, I, I did mull that over because I, I do wonder. And, and they mentioned, you know, oh, maybe you'll find a way to, to synchronize up with the rest of the universe. Um, and I've always I've always kind of thought that I think they just abandoned the planet. Rather, I don't think they'd ever find a solution to syncing up with the rest of the universe. I mean, maybe you can use it for like high speed development. You know, oh, we need to finish that project in a couple of years. Quickly pop down to the planet. Five seconds pass. They come back up. Job done. But I I, I just think from a sci fi perspective, they would have just bailed. They would have got out and colonized somewhere else. Yeah. And that's that's it. If they tried to expand beyond that planet, I don't see them becoming an empire to rival the Borg because that planet is unique. If they colonize 10 other planets, the other 10 planets don't have that advantage. Exactly. It's just the home world. You, you, you begs the question. I mean, it's not inside Borg space, but almost all of the Delta Quadrant, once you leave the Kazon territory, is pretty much fair game for the Borg. You do wonder why the Borg and all of their infinite resources never found a planet where all you've got to do is drop one Borg drone on it. Yeah. That's it. You, you, you've hyper-developed the entire Borg Empire in minutes well who knows maybe it's just you know that that borg freaks out because it gets disconnected from the collective because of the differential in the communications true that actually could be interesting where you drop a borg the borg hyper evolved and they finally get to the point where like you know what 
we're tools. We shouldn't do this anymore. Um, you know, they can, the board come to their senses, so to speak. And, um, you know, the, I guess the, the planet itself gives you a lot of different jumping off points, um, beyond this episode. Yeah. Even if mm. there's no official novels or comics based on it, there's gotta be your choice of fanfic. Oh yeah. Because th- there's, there's a very rich potential here. You've just you just not only explained why certain things never happen, but you've just written three of them yourself. So well done, you know. You've <laughs> there's a spin-off series just waiting to happen. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure the the, the crew the, the the writers and and producers of Star Trek Discovery are listening to us avidly. I'm sure they're they're all over us. Well, I mean, it, they started with Brian Fuller, whose whose name was introduced to the credits as executive story editor at around the time that Voyager started to gel. So that's discovery may be delayed again and again. I mean, we are recording this well in advance, so it's bound to have been on the air by the time you hear this, but at least up to this point, every time they name someone specific for cast crew, you know, especially anyone in the writer's room, it's either a name where I go, I know that name. That's a good choice. Or I don't know that name. Let me look them up on the IMDB. Oh, they have done stuff. I like, <laughs> it's cons- every writer on there is consistently stuff I like and stuff I haven't seen. Yeah, but there's a there's a lot of other ingredients. You, you've got to have cast. It's about the channel they put it on, the timing it's going to come on, timing in general. What else is on to compete with it? It's a, a... yeah. Using this streaming solution is going to eliminate a lot of the scheduling issues. Brian and I talked about it in an episode that people haven't heard yet because Next Gen hasn't come out yet. But my prediction. Uh, because the UK, pretty much everyone but the US and Canada gets it on Netflix 24 hours later. Yeah. The US gets it on CBS All Access. Canada gets it on the Space Channel in the original, where the pilot's going to be on CFRN or CTV. The subsequent episodes are going to be on Space, and then the rest will be streaming through Bell Canada's streaming service shortly thereafter. And like I said, the rest of the planet gets it on Netflix, so I think what we're going to see is instead of people all around the world using VPNs to pretend their browsers in the U.S. to get access to that Netflix library, we're going to get people in the U.S. and Canada using VPNs to pretend they're in the U.K. to get access to Star Trek Discovery through that library. But mm-hmm. we'll see. Yeah, it's at least as far as I'm concerned, like you said, it's with the writer's room, the directors, the cast, they've got the right ingredients. What we need to know is if they're going to turn that into a coherent recipe that comes out well in the end. Because you can take great ingredients and still spoil the recipe. Yeah, Voyager, I hope you're listening. Yeah, as far as creative teams go, I think I think Discovery has got the best potential since Deep Space Nine. Anyway, so I think we will wrap things up there. So, Rob and Brian, thanks for joining me. So, Brian, I know that you've got a home on the internet for your own audio work why don't you remind people where they can find it yeah you can uh you can usually uh, hit me up uh the voices in my head.com um <laughs> hopefully by the time uh, this rolls out i'll have another uh audiobook out i just a uh, couple months ago finished up a vampire gangster uh, uh novel uh narrating uh called drawing dead so if you're you're into vampires or you're into uh, you know, 1930s New York gangster uh, culture, or both, uh, be sure to check it out. Okay. Rob, is there any place you'd like to direct people to? 
Uh, I'm just one of your average civilians, so uh, I can be found on Twitter, where I I ramble quite a lot, majority of the time about comic books, um, at at RefGemlin, that's R-E-F-G-E-M-L-I-N, or just try and type the word gremlin drunk, and you'll find it. That's that's basically how I came up with it one day, so that's the fastest way to find me. Okay, and as I said, you can also find him participating in Horizon Labs, on all the social media where that may be found. We're not hard to find. All right, and so listeners, thank you for listening. Don't forget to rate this and any other shows that you listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcast you do, and it really does help the shows get noticed. And join us again for, well, like I said, Deep Space Nine is coming up five episodes from now. But as with most of them, we're going to reveal the next episode in our mini-episode next week. So join us for that. Thank you for listening. what they're going for because it was you know back back when back when paramount gave crap and and gave us something an anniversary you know present kind of thing unlike last year <laughs> it's like yeah it was it was really it was just like okay anytime you want to do something cool for the 50th go ahead we're still waiting i appreciate what they tried on voyager i mean that was one of my favorite episodes this one i had such a hard time Ignoring the science, especially the second viewing, it stood out more. Like, if this planet was rotating 58 times per minute before Voyager got stuck there and sped it up even more, why do they see stars as points in the sky? Uh, yeah. They should be rings, and very faint rings. Voyager should stand out because it's the only stationary part in the night sky. They shouldn't have noticeable day and night cycles because that sun is basically blinking for them. Their sun is a strobe light. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. You've got a society that doesn't have day and night cycles. You've got a society that can't see the outside world. They don't have seasons like Voyager showed because they're not moving through the orbit to get yeah. those seasons. Like, And the fact that they made a point of we're watching the seasons change, it's like, what seasons? It's not moving fast relative to the sun. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh. It'd be yeah, it'd be a little more like more like uh, the, the the world of Game of Thrones where seasons last, but I guess for them seasons would last hundreds of years. Yeah, and even when you look at the uh, the fact that it's a time gradient, so it's worst at the surface, and there's a gradual shift as you come up to Voyager. Do you have any idea what that does to the wind patterns on this planet? Oh yeah, like they're living in a hurricane all the time. Oh my goodness. It should be dim because all the light that we normally get in an hour is falling in the course of a year. So to say they don't have day-night cycles, it's because it's all a very, very dark dusk. Mm-hmm. They don't have daytime. Like They, they should be wondering why their eyes are designed to catch so much light and why this, the planet's evolution has such poor light-sensitive vision. Because they, they're not dealing with evolutionary time scales. So they were developed, mm. like their eyes evolved when they were getting more light in because the planet wasn't moving as quickly. And even mm. then, the view from the outside is cloud cover. We can't see the surface. We see the clouds. So why can they see space so clearly? Yeah. It's how can, if the characters from the planet are watching, going through Voyager, and Voyager's moving so slowly that Janeway's coffee suspended in the air, how are they breathing in and out? because the oxygen can't move through the air close enough for their second breath.
they should have suffocated when they came in. Yeah, see, see, DS9 did that, well, not with time, but with the, when they did the, uh, one, was it called One Little Ship? Where the, yeah. one of the runabouts gets shrunk down? Yeah. And Vegas like, we can't leave, this is the runabout, because the oxygen out there, the, the molecules are too big. Um, yeah. And then when they beam off, they beam a little bubble of air, so they actually, they actually, I remember doing that because it was, you know, one of those things, it's like, I always remember, it's like, whenever you, sh- whenever they do the, the shrinking things, it's like, how do you breathe? Because, you know, the, your lungs can't process oxygen molecules that big. Um, and, and they actually had a little line in there where they beamed, not only did they beam, uh, Bashir and O'Brien into the, into the console, she, be- she beamed air into it there as well. Yeah. So they could breathe. Which, I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's not a perfect solution, but they addressed the problems and came up with a hand wavy way to do it. That's at least enough I can accept, because it's not about the science. This felt like it, part of it is about the planet that goes there. It's like the black hole. It's about being trapped in a black hole, but the event horizon is a giant purple crystal they can shoot open with phasers and photon torpedoes and leave on sublight engines. Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah, there were, there was some really, yeah, the science, the, 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 the techno, the techno babble in Voyager was bad. It was really, some really bad stuff. <laughs> 